This is a Federal News Network podcast. The U.S. National Ice Center. It sounds like a hockey rink, but actually it's an agency operating under the Naval Meteorology and Oceanography Command. Actually, it's a combination of several agencies leading the Navy, but also the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the Coast Guard. For what the National Ice Center is all about, joining me in studio, its director and commanding officer, Navy Commander Casey Gahn. Commander Gahn, good to have you with us. Thanks. Great to be here. And what exactly is the mission of the U.S. National Ice Center? You did a great job explaining uh, who we are. Uh, We are a tri-agency organization. That is uh, NOAA, the Coast Guard, and the Navy. We are an operational center that keeps people safe that are operating in, on, or near the ice. And just reading a recent news release on your website, I saw that a piece of ice had calved. I guess that means break off and float away. So icebergs and floating ice, even this far into the 21st century, still matter to ships and navigation? Yes, sir, absolutely. Uh, So we track the huge icebergs that calve off the Antarctic glaciers in the Southern Hemisphere, and we actually track them, uh, name them, and monitor those. For the Northern Hemisphere, there's a smaller command called the International Ice Patrol, which is a Coast Guard command that's co-located in Suitland, Maryland with us at the Federal Complex. And they actually track the icebergs that are in the Arctic shipping lanes that were born out of the Titanic incident, actually. Sure, yeah. And uh, golly, which still reverberates, I think, throughout shipping and through the kind of the national consciousness all these years later. Just out of curiosity, when a iceberg calves and floats away as its own entity, how long does it last? What happens to icebergs over time? We track them and they float away. And over time, they'll go away and just disappear. Disappear, yeah. All right. So with the Coast Guard leading the agency in the Northern Hemisphere, and you looking at the Southern Hemisphere, there's really no interaction in terms of icebergs then, is there? Not necessarily interaction from the two agencies, but really where the National Ice Center is focused is actually tracking the ice. So we look at the Arctic ice, we look at the Antarctic ice, and then we also look at ice on the Great Lakes, the Chesapeake Bay, the Delaware Bay, and then wherever else there might be ice that the Navy might be interested in. So clearly, uh, given the current geopolitical situation, we'll be looking to see if there's any ice and things like that going on in the uh, Black Sea and how that might affect operations. Right, because Russian forces are in pretty cold climates where they keep their ships and their subs, so you'd want to know what they might be encountering. That's absolutely a part of it. And when you look at the way our organization is broken down, we identify as the National Ice Center, but we all have our specific missions, if you will. So the Navy is worried about ice from where our submarines are going and where our Greyhull ships are going. Uh, the Coast Guard has the only two icebreakers in the U.S. inventory currently, so those icebreakers are constantly Uh, In fact, the Coast Guard Cutter Healy is just wrapping up its summer patrol uh, where they went all the way up to the North Pole and back. My operations officer was on board providing support on the best way to go about navigating through the ice uh, to achieve those mission goals. And then the the Polar Star is the other one that typically goes down to McMurdo Station for the annual resupply to McMurdo Station in the Southern Hemisphere, which we also support. And then NOAA's view on ice is to track it climatologically. And they also have uh, operational missions on the Great Lakes. So a a ton of commerce is moving on the Great Lakes. And so there's an ice-breaking mission on the Great Lakes to keep those lanes open so commerce can continue throughout the winter months. Additionally, with the Alaska Sea Ice Program, that's also a NOAA mission uh, based in Alaska, 
where they're looking at ice with a totally different perspective of how is that affecting the Inuit cultures uh, up there for hunting, fishing, and maintaining their lifestyle. So the National Ice Center is a really interesting thing because you have this naval mission piece, you have this humanitarian type mission, and then this commerce mission, and it all come together and we help manage that. And what sort of assets do you have to look at ice? NOAA, of course, has its satellites, and it also has ships and submarines, and the Navy has the whole meteorology and oceanography command. So are there special assets devoted to just the U.S. National Ice Center for looking at these things and tracking them and finding out where they are? The number one workhorse that we rely on is satellites. Specifically, we really like synthetic aperture radar satellites. And the reason we like that is because they're all weather. They can see through the clouds. They can see during the day. They can see during the night. Uh, We also have access to visible imagery that is affected by clouds and and nighttime uh, microwave uh, imagery. And we're constantly looking and working with the scientific communities for new options and new opportunities, whether it's a different band of synthetic aperture radar and how we can exploit that, uh, as well as we invest heavily in what's called the interagency Arctic buoy program, where we actually sure. buy buoys and they're deployed through ships as well as aircraft to collect what we call in situ observations. And then finally, um, this year, which we're really excited about, is we signed what's called a special CRADA, or a Cooperative Research uh, and Development Agreement with industry, a company called SOFAR, who's making buoys. And uh, part of the mission when the Coast Guard Cutter Healy went up to the North Pole was to put these basketball-sized hardened buoys in the Arctic to see how they would perform. So we dropped five of those buoys there, and uh, we're going to drop 10 buoys uh, in the Southern Ocean on the deployment for the Polar Star. And by the way, are they marked in some way so that some other nation might not mistake them for mines? They're bright yellow. They have uh, solar panels on them. No one would mistake that for a mine. I I don't think so. (laughs) We're speaking with Navy Commander Casey Gahn. He's commanding officer of the U.S. National Ice Center. And tell us about the personnel makeup and what kinds of skills you have and the balance between civilians and uniform members. I have a small but mighty team. Uh, We have approximately uh, 50 people on board. And our makeup is about 10 military in uniform. So... We have uh, some senior enlisted personnel who help run our IT and do administrative work, as well as um, my department heads are lieutenants in the Navy. And then uh, we go into the Department of the Navy has actual physical scientists and meteorological technicians who are actually doing the analysis day in and day out in their civilian DON employees. They man our watch floor and they literally draw the line on where the marginal ice zone is in the Arctic and Antarctic. And then what's closer to my heart is we actually get the opportunity to work with customers that are going up there and we, we learn and understand their mission. And then we figure out how we can tailor those products to specifically support their mission, be it for voyage planning. We don't want to come near the ice, so keep us away, uh, 100 miles away from the ice edge. How do we do that? And if we figure out how to communicate those products visually or in text or whatever their bandwidth limitations are, we try to manipulate that so we can get the information to them so they're safe. So one way or another, your output is telling people where ice is and where it could be moving. Yes, sir. And then we have on the NOAA side, some NOAA employees. The deputy director, uh, Mr. Kevin Berberick, is a NOAA employee. He is the director of the Ice Services Branch, which falls under the Ocean Prediction Center in NOAA. And then we have a product area lead, Mr. Walt Clark. And then we have a, a very small but mighty contracting team that does all of these snow and ice mapping around the world. And that's a contractor team that is through NOAA. 
And then I have my IT team. My IT specialist is uh, all Navy right now. They're all civilian with the exception of one enlisted Navy member. And that IT team is mighty because they're coding and they're figuring out how to make a very complex system so multiple people can look at different regions of the world and draw these lines so we can get the information out to communicate that. And they're maintaining our websites. And again, in that IT team is only five people strong uh, supporting this. And, and we're the only ICE center in the world that is mapping ICE globally. So when you think about Britain or uh, Argentina or Canada, they have their own ICE services as well, but they're really concerned about their geographic region that's important to them, where sure. they're operating or, or what affects their country. Uh, what makes the U.S. unique and very special is our ICE center actually maps it globally. So we look at the entire Arctic, the entire Antarctic, and, and we track that. And so it's very important as you're looking at the climatological record of how the ice is, is growing or receding and how it's changing over the years, we're that climatological record, we're providing that record um, globally, uh, which is, is unique. Now, the iceberg that sank the Titanic took Captain Smith by surprise. There were reports, but no one knew precisely where it was, and he was going a full 20-some knots. Do you have tools nowadays that can maybe predict where a iceberg might calve and where it might head once it does break off? Forecasting these events is an active area that's growing of research and in, in science. What I can offer is uh, Commander Marcus Hirschberg, the commanding officer of the International Ice Patrol, his team in the Coast Guard is investing heavily in artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms to identify these icebergs. And then once they're identified, trying to model where we think they're going to go. Obviously, it's a very difficult problem. Uh, his old XO had a really great presentation that he would give that the difficulty in this, this algorithm is a lot of these icebergs are about the same size as a ship. So it's a satellite image that's pixelated. And somehow that computer algorithm has to decide, is that a ship or is that an iceberg? And he would actually play a game with us, throwing up pictures and say, is that a ship or is that an iceberg? And it's incredibly difficult, and it's a problem that's being actively looked at and figured out. There's Ooh. no way you can kind of fly over the ice and see a certain shimmer and say, uh-oh, that's about to be an iceberg. Capable of that yet? I think we can do that, but the problem that you just identified there for me, and if Commander Hirschberg was here, is the flying over piece. Assets are limited. They're very remote, austere locations to get to, so the legs on airplanes are, are limited to do that, and it's incredibly expensive. In fact, that's why the Ice Patrol is looking at taking this shift and trying to take advantage more of satellite imagery because aircraft time is so expensive and so hard to come by to do this mission. So they're actually kind of going through a transition themselves on how to do this. So we're really relying on satellites. And so the question that I kind of bounce around in my head with respect to this, just from an ice perspective and in addition to the icebergs, is what other technology is out there? Are there cheaper satellite constellations that are maybe less expensive, but we can throw more of out there so we can get pictures faster back to the operators to look at these things and, and analyze them? On average, there's times where we don't get any pictures to look at for specific areas because the satellite just didn't fly over that. Mm -hmm. So if we could have more satellites in the sky 
to take more pictures and get them back to us faster and cut down on that latency, then I think we could probably do a better job. And I think there's a lot of good industry initiatives out there that are getting after this for multiple reasons. Basically, you have to keep watching the edge of the ice, though, correct? Absolutely. I mean, the the ice, it's dynamic. It changes. The weather events that occur in the high latitudes are incredibly dynamic. And, you know, that ice edge can grow or shrink overnight, you know, on the order of hundreds of miles. Um, And so that's why what my team does is so important. So if you think about having a, a Navy vessel operating up there that's not ice hardened and not designed to be in the ice, and they say, hey, keep us 100 miles away from the edge of the ice. We're comfortable with that. Well, we know that the ice can shrink or grow by 100 miles overnight, literally. That's problematic, and that could create a very dynamic scenario for the Coast Guard cutters or or the Navy ships that can't handle those conditions. Sounds like maybe you need one of those long-lasting drones with a camera that could fly the whole perimeter and then, you know, launch again. Free idea for you. (laughs) I think uh, it's it's, it's interesting, and industry is doing an incredible job with looking at how they can get after these reasons. Obviously, from a Navy perspective, we would be very interested in in having that persistence, but we're happy to work with industry. We're happy to hear the ideas and, and see how we can get after these things, but it's larger than that. Science is interested in this area. Climate change is a very active uh, area of research. The current administration is very concerned about climate change and what they can do about it. So it's a really ripe, awesome opportunity right now to take advantage of potential advances in technology and science. And just a quick question about your own background. Are you a meteorologist, an ice expert? How did you come to this particular perch in the Navy? Yeah, it's a funny uh, story, but uh, I started off driving ships in the Navy. I was a surface warfare officer for approximately six years, and then um, I transitioned to become a meteorology and oceanography officer. So uh, I, I am now a meteorologist or an oceanographer for the Navy. I had the opportunity to go to the Naval Postgraduate School twice to get my master's degree and ultimately my PhD in nearshore oceanography. And I've had the opportunity to serve in a variety of roles in the community, whether it was on board a ship as the oceanographer or in Bahrain as the fleet oceanographer or now currently in my role as the commanding officer and director of the National Naval Ice Center. Am I an ice expert? Absolutely not. I have an incredible team of ice experts that I lean on heavily But I am a meteorologist and I am an oceanographer, so I understand environmental science pretty well. One thing about ISO is it's it's a very niche area. Um, So my team is truly their national treasures, right? Because there's only one national ice center. And those 12 to 15 analysts at any given time, they're They're some of the only people that do this in the world. It's a small community. So it's pretty important. And uh, we're, we're really lucky to have the people we have. Navy Commander Casey Gunn is commanding officer of the U.S. National Ice Center. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology 
at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances 
um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all, and a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, 
So helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Top tech companies like Intel have a secret to their success. They get the best talent, reliable infrastructure, and save on costs by expanding in Ohio, the new Silicon Heartland. Learn how your business can succeed in Ohio. Visit successinohio.com.